grateful for what the Lord has continued to do in our church, and I'm grateful we have a pastor that knows the leadership of the Holy Spirit of God. And um, as I thought about Miss, Miss Marcy needing the Lord, we'll certainly add her to our personal prayer list and pray that God will bring her soon into the family of God. I, uh, I want to say tonight I love Mrs. Ellis. I appreciate her. I was preaching, it's been a few months back, and I said I don't know if there's been more than a day or two uh, in the 38 years we've been married that has gone by that I hadn't told her that I love you. And after the service, she corrected me. She said, there's never been a single day since we got married you hadn't said that I love you and you love me and uh, that I love you. Amen. And I'm grateful for a godly wife and thank you, church, for uh, allowing us to be able to come tonight. If you have your Bible, I want to go straight to the Scripture without delay. And uh, let's go to the New Testament. We'll go to the book of Second Corinthians. Second Corinthians in chapter 4. I do not know the needs that are represented in this room tonight, in this auditorium, but I do know that God has laid this message upon our heart as we struggle to concern, concerning the matter of revival. There are many subjects that was on our heart, but the Lord repeatedly, as I prayed throughout the day, uh, led me to 2 Corinthians in chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles at 2 Corinthians in chapter 4, let's stand in reverence to the reading of the Bible tonight. <clears throat> 2 Corinthians in chapter 4, Paul writing his second letter to the Christians and the church at Corinth, said, Therefore, seeing we have this ministry as we have received mercy, we faint not, but have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, committing ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost." In whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. Let's pray. Our fathers, we bow before the throne of grace. We thank you for this day that you have set before us, and we thank you for the opportunity to be back in church tonight. Thank you for how the Holy Spirit of God has already moved in our midst and spoken to hearts. We thank you for the songs and the testimonies of Zion tonight. I pray for Marcy that the Holy Spirit of God would convict her. May she realize her great need of salvation. And I pray that you will help her to act upon that need. Father, I pray that you may work in her heart and God that she may not only be saved herself, but their family and her loved ones. They should be able to bring them into the church and into the kingdom of God. I would ask you tonight now that your blessings be upon the preaching of thy word. Our Father, if there are those that sit in the sound of our voice tonight that are lost and have never been saved, I pray the Holy Spirit of God would convict them and show them their need tonight. Now, Father, I am assured that all of us sitting here tonight have loved ones that are lost without Christ. May you burden our hearts tonight and may you lay upon us the burden for their soul to pray for them, to witness to them, and to tell them about the Lord Jesus, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. I would ask you tonight now that you'll continue to bless this meeting. God, may you meet every need. You know the need of every heart tonight. And I pray you'll meet it according to your good pleasure. For we ask and pray it in Christ's name. For his sake we pray. Amen. You may be seated. 
as we have read the second letter of the Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth in the opening verses of 2 Corinthians in chapter 4, we find that he is addressing the Christians in the church where he says in verse number 1, therefore saying, we have this ministry. And we know that he is addressing the believers because only those that are saved are called into the gospel ministry, called to serve the Lord. And he says, we've received mercy and we faint not. Then he talks in verse number two of having renounced the hidden things of dishonesty and not walking in craftiness nor handling the word of God deceitfully. Aren't you glad that when we get saved and birthed into the family of God that our lives change, our character changes? Only God can change the character of a man or a woman, boy or girl. He says, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. But notice with us, please, in verse number three and verse number four. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost. Notice he refers to the gospel being hid to those that are lost. The gospel is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is that which we have been given the divine commission to uh, proclaim and to proclamate around the world and throughout our communities, our state, our nation, and the nations of the world. And he says, but if our gospel be hid. Can you imagine the gospel being hid to someone? That the gospel has never been shown to someone? That the gospel may literally live in the very midst of people that are without Christ and yet they never one time see the gospel of Jesus Christ. I was born in Chatsworth, Georgia. I was raised for the most part throughout the Dalton region. My wife was born in Ringgold, Georgia. Not one single time did I ever hear the gospel or the plan of salvation until I was 16 years old. I'll not get into the details and the circumstances surrounding me receiving the gospel. But the first time that I received the gospel where I was under conviction was sitting in a jail cell in Sevierville, Tennessee. And in that cell, John 3.16 was inscribed on the wall with a tube of red lipstick or some type of a red crayon or marker. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And sitting in that cell that night, I was under Holy Ghost conviction. At the time, I didn't know it was Holy Ghost conviction, but I know this, I was miserable in my sin. And I remember sitting in that cell and they had all the windows open in that particular cell block and I remember sitting there freezing. There was no blankets or sheets or anything. There were just still bunks. And as I lay on those still bunks and I read John 3.16, I memorized John 3.16 as a sinner. I didn't know much about John 3.16. I had heard it and when I was a young man, but I didn't know anything about it. No one ever explained John 3.16, let alone give me the gospel of Jesus Christ. I was lost in my sin. And on the day that I was arrested for disorderly conduct in my sinful, shameful degradation, there was a group of young people in a city park that came up and reached into their pocket and they grabbed out a little piece of paper. I didn't know what it was at the time, but it was a gospel track. 
They offered me one of them. I accepted it, and when I realized it was religious, I uh, wadded it up, threw it on the ground, I gave them some choice words as a sinner, and went about my sin. That night, I was thrown in jail for disorderly conduct, and that's when I was thrown in a cell block with John 3.16 inscribed on it. That night, there was a man that they threw in a cell beside me. I didn't understand it at the time. All the other prisoners were down at the end of that corridor, and they had segregated me from them. I didn't know it at the time, but two things from the, uh, from the police uh, sheriff's department, from their mindset, they were segregating me because of my youth from the other prisoners. But in the providence of God, they had segregated me from the other prisoners because God wanted me in a cell block that had John 3.16 inscribed on the wall. And that verse did its work. That night, they threw a guy in the cell beside me. And um, I don't mean to be vulgar tonight or rude, but honestly, I've heard the old expression growing up, drunk as a skunk. And that man fit that description. If there ever was a man that fit the description, it was that young man. And while he sat in that cell block in a drunken stupor, all he could talk about was Jesus Christ and him crucified and risen again to save sinners. And I was under conviction. If I could have got through those bars, I would have shut him up. But more than likely, he would have shut me up. Been the young teenager that I was. I had an uncle that came and paid my bond and bail and took me uh, back to Dalton, uh, Georgia. Uh, Well, actually, the police transferred me back here, and he came and paid my bond and bail and took me to live with him. And long story short, I went to church that Sunday morning, and the preacher preached, and he preached on everything that I'd ever done. I felt like the lady at the well in John's gospel when she met the Lord and went in the city and said, come see a man that told me all that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? And that morning I looked over at an uncle who was listening to the preacher and he was snickering under his breath and he was watching me in his peripheral vision. And I thought to myself, I know exactly what's happened here. Everything I'd ever done, that preacher was preaching against it that morning. And I thought, I know what happened. My uncle Dwight has gone to the preacher and told him, Terry Ellis is going to be here and he's done this, 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 and thus, and you need to let him have it. I had, and I'll use prison terminology here, I had cased out what I considered to be the church. There were exits up front, there were exits in the back, and one exit to the side. And after I looked at it, I thought, this is my closest exit. And what I'm going to do when that preacher says his last amen I'm going to hit my uncle in the mouth as hard as I can, and I'm going to run for my life. Now, you'd have to know my uncle Dwight is an ex-paratrooper in the Vietnam War. He was a man's man. I've seen him walk up to the bed of a flatbed truck and take a four-inch piece of uh, steel pipe aligned with concrete, 21 foot long, weighs about 450 pounds, and he walked up to it, dipped his shoulder, rolled over a piece of pipe, 450 pounds, and walked off with it. I wasn't afraid to hit him, but I was afraid if he caught up with me. And that morning, as the invitation was given, in my heart I began to struggle and I began to argue of all of these things that had transpired in my life. And I said, if somehow there is a God in heaven that has allowed me to be in a public park and for the first time in my life, I receive a piece of paper with a gospel written on it. 
If there's a God in heaven that of all those cell blocks would put me in a cell with John 3.16 on it, if there's a God in heaven that would allow me to be living with an uncle that I had stabbed in the back, uh, speaking metaphorically, who had tried to help me on numerous occasions, and if there's a God in heaven that would speak to him and he would be converted to Christ. And I remember when he got me out of jail and he was taking me home and he stopped the car in the middle of a four-lane highway. A car started going around and blowing the horn. He adjusted his mirror, looked at me, and he said to me, he said, boy, and when he said boy, I listened. He said, since the last time you saw me, I got saved and gave my life to Jesus Christ. And if you come live with us, you don't have a choice in the matter. You're going to church or I'll take you back to jail and you can rot there as far as I'm concerned. And I told my Uncle Dwight, I said, church is better than jail any day. Of course, that was before I've been in some churches I've been in over the years. I went that Sunday morning and the preacher preached and I got under conviction and long story short, I went forward and received Christ into my heart as my personal Lord and Savior. And that day I realized that I was lost without Christ. Now I want to preach for just a moment tonight on that subject matter. What does it mean to be lost? Notice in our text tonight, the Bible says in verse number three, but if our gospel be hid... It is hid to them that are lost. In whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. And I want to address the subject matter of what it means to be lost in the Bible. As we consider our text, notice the Bible says in verse number 3 that if the gospel is hid, it is hid to them that are lost. To illustrate this before I get into my thoughts tonight, I remember when I was a young man living in Chatsworth, Georgia, and my grandpa still plowed with a mule. And he would make those rounds with his mule, and I noticed one day as a young man that he had something that was big, and it was leather, and it was on the mule's face over his eyeballs. And I said to him, I said, uh, Grandpa, I said, uh, what are those things you've got on the old mule? I said, it looks like sunglasses or shades. He laughed and he said, boy, uh, that's not shades. He said, that's blinders. And as a young man, I said to him, I said, well, Grandpa, why would you want to blind the mule? Don't you want him to see where he's going? And this is what he said to me. He said, son, he said, I put those blinders on the mule so that they'll look straight ahead. So the mule will plow in a straight row. Uh, if I don't have him on there, he'll look to the right and he'll wander to the right. He'll look to the left and wander to the left and he'll be all over this field. And when the Bible said that he, the gospel is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them that believe not, what he is literally saying is this, is that Satan has blinded the minds of the lost that are in their sin without Jesus Christ and all they can see is a straight row in front of them, but that row is sin on every hand. And sin has blinded them from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now what does it mean to be lost? I've been lost before in the mountains of Wyoming. 
And what it means to be lost, the first thing you notice is that you're on the wrong path. And to be lost in the Bible simply means that we are on the wrong path. In Proverbs 14 and verse number 12, the Bible said, There is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. And so we find that a lost man, a lost boy, a lost woman, or a lost girl, a lost individual, they are on the wrong path of life. They are convinced that their path will take them to heaven, but when they get to the end, they'll find out it was a way of death rather than the way of life. Bible gives us an example in Luke's gospel chapter number 18, verse number 18 through verse number 27. There was a rich young man that came to the Savior and said to him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? First off, he asked the wrong question for there's nothing we can do to inherit eternal life. It's already been done on Calvary through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And the Bible says that Jesus began to quote uh, some of the Ten Commandments. In fact, if we were to take time to turn to Luke's Gospel, chapter number 18, and begin reading in verse number 18, and read it, you'll find that Jesus quotes five of the Ten Commandments found in the book of Exodus. So is Jesus trying to say to this young man that if you want to have eternal life, just keep the golden rule, keep the Ten Commandments, and you'll find that at the end of life's journey, you'll be in heaven and have eternal life? No. You say, preacher, why did he only quote five of the Ten Commandments? If you'll read the context, he stopped shy of thou shall not covet. This man had a problem with covetousness. You see, envy is after position. We envy someone because they get more recognition than we get. We envy someone because they got a raise on the job and we didn't. We envy someone because they got a greater position than we did and we envy them. But covetousness is after possession where envy is after position. And the Bible said, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. It belongs to another man. She belongs to another man. And thou shalt not covet him. And so Jesus stopped shy of thou shalt not covet, knowing that this man's sin was covetousness to get more wealth and more things and more monetary value in his life. But we find three things in this passage of Scripture. Jesus Uh, stopped shy of the sixth commandment and the Bible said that the rich young man looked at him and he said, all these have I kept from my youth up. Notice this rich young man was a religious man. He knew the Ten Commandments. He had been taught the Ten Commandments. And he replies to the Lord and says, all these have I done for my youth up. In other words, he says, I know the Bible. I know the commandments. I'm a religious man. So am I going to have eternal life? May I say to you that religion will never get someone to heaven? 
Religion is only found five times in the Bible in the Word of God. In fact, the Bible goes so far as to define what religion is. In the book of James, he said, Pure religion and undefiled faith before God and the Father is this, to visit the the fatherless and the widows and their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. You want religion according to the Bible? Live a morally clean life. Take care of widows and orphans and you'll have religion. There's just one problem with religion. You'll never find one single passage of scripture where religion is associated to taking one to heaven. This man was self-righteous. In verse number 21, he said, all these have I kept from my youth up. Religion will not get you to heaven. Self-righteousness will not get you to heaven. Can you imagine the mother and dad that have gone down the path of some religious organization and ritual and they have lived their whole life and raised their children and grandchildren and possibly their great-grandchildren in these religions and they get to the end of life's journey and realize that they have chosen the wrong path in life and they do not know Christ as their Savior? The Bible says in verse number 23, Jesus uh, told him, said, how hardly are those that are rich enter into the kingdom of God. He said, go and sell that thou hast and give to the poor and come follow me. And the Bible said that the rich man walked away. His religion was not good enough to get him to heaven. His self-righteousness was not good enough to get him into heaven. I remember when I was a chaplain at the Wyoming State Penitentiary in Rollins, Wyoming. Our pastor was out of town for a couple of weeks and he had asked that I stay and fill the pulpit for him. I stood to preach on a Sunday morning and I preached and in my message, I, just off the top of my heart, I said this statement. I said, you can be sitting under the sound of our voice and have all the degrees you want. You can even have a doctor's degree, a master's degree, a bachelor's degree, associate's degree, a certificate of education and die lost in your sin and go to hell without Christ. And there you'll spend an eternity. During the invitation, there was a man stood up in the back of the auditorium, started down the aisle, and I thought, glory to God, someone's going to come and get saved and birthed into the family of God. But he got in front of the pulpit, and he looked up, and he pointed his finger, and he said, Sir, I don't believe a word you preached this morning. He said, furthermore, he said, I won't ever be back to this church again. I thought, well, I don't know what my pastor would have told him. And I didn't say that out loud, but I'm thinking to myself, with that kind of an attitude, I hope you don't come back again. And I didn't tell him that, but that was in my mind and heart. He turned and stormed out the door. That night, I stood to preach, and God had laid a message on my heart, and I got about a 10 minutes or so into my message, and the door of the back of the church slung open, and in walked that same man, sitting in the very back of the auditorium. I wish I'd known he was coming before I started preaching a message God had laid on my heart. I might have been tempted to change. I preached that night and during the invitation, sure enough, he got up and walked down the aisle and he stood in front of the pulpit, did the same thing he did that morning. He said, I have you know, I don't believe a word you preach and I'll never be back to this church again. He turned and stormed out the back door, slammed the door and I thought, thank God that's over with. 
I had no more thought that in my mind and the door slung open. He said, furthermore, he said, I don't believe a word of that. It, and it's a, it's a bunch of junk you're preaching that gospel. And he walked out again. And a few seconds later, he came back in. He said, I want to know more about this stuff. That's the craziest thing I've ever heard in my life. His name was Mike Williams. And I didn't know it that morning after he had left that night. Um, I asked someone in the church, they said, do you know who that was? I said, who? They said uh, it was Mike Williams. And he's not kin to Brother Williams back here, I don't think. Of course, they both got a lot. No, never mind. I just pick on Brother Williams tonight. Because they had a little bit in common. But I talked to someone. They said, that's the high school principal and he's due to get his doctorate's degree next week. And you highly offended him this morning. Well, I didn't know he was going to get his doctorate's degree. I was just preaching. And so Mike had told me, he said, I'll meet you in the morning at the Village Inn. Now, I'm a prison preacher, so I thought to myself, okay, Village Inn. He wanted me to 7 o'clock. I'm thinking, okay, they don't open to 8. It's outside the city limits. He'll shoot me, leave me in the back of the parking lot, and they won't find me until 8 o'clock when everybody comes in. And by then, nobody will know what happened. And the Holy Spirit of God said, meet with him. Now I argued in my heart. I said, Lord, do I have to? And he said, meet with him. I said, Mike, I'll see you in the morning at 7 o'clock at the village inn. We went into the village inn, and to make a long story short, we sat at the table, and he told me, he said, now, preacher, he said, that's the craziest thing I've ever heard in my life. He said, you're telling me religion won't get you to heaven. He said, if religion won't get you to heaven, what gets you to heaven? I said, I'm glad you asked. And I gave him the gospel of Jesus Christ as death, burial, and resurrection. He said, that's the dumbest thing I ever heard in my life. And he said, he had just told me the story of what happened. He was in the New Age movement, and a lady friend of his had got him into his religion. She was traveling north of Rollins, Wyoming, going to Casper, Wyoming, and she was in a blinding snowstorm, and hit black ice and her car rolled and she was catapulted out of the car, didn't have her seatbelt on. And he said, preacher, she landed upside, the car landed upside down on top of her on the side of the road and said she lay there in a blinding snowstorm that closed the interstate or the road behind her. And it was a tractor trailer just happened to get through in the nick of time before the road was closed. He'd come by and he saw her in a blinding snowstorm. He said while she was laying on the side of the road, she remembered when she was a little girl, her Sunday school teacher taught her, it doesn't matter where you are, what circumstances you're under, if you'll call out on God and ask him to save you, he'll save you. And said, preacher, laying on the side of the road dying, she called out on God and she became a Christian. He said, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. And then he asked me this question. He said, why should I trade my gods for your God? Now that's a legitimate question. Why should a sinner trade their gods, whatever be the case, and whatever their gods are, why should they trade their gods for the God of the Bible, Jesus Christ? Why should they junk their religion? Why should they junk their uh, cults and their churches and come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ? That's a legitimate question. And the Holy Ghost of God said, use his lady friend as an example. 
And he said, I, I've got a good job. I've got a good family, got good salaries, got a good home, got great vehicles, getting ready to get my doctor's degree. Now you tell me, he said, my God's been awful good to me, preacher. You tell me why I need to give all that up and trust your God. And the Holy Ghost of God said, use this for lady friend. I said, okay, Mike. I said, I, I, you're right. I said, your God's good to you. Your God's given you a good job. Your God's given you a good education. Your God's given you a, a beautiful family. And your God's been good to you with all these things going on. I said, there's just one problem, Mike. I said, your God's good enough to live by, but he wasn't good enough to die by. And just like that, the Holy Ghost of God broke in. He began to weep. He said, you're right, preacher. He said, I have been sucked into this. And he said, I've been blinded to it. He said, you're right. She got me into my religion and she lived by this and I lived by it. But when it come time to die, she had to junk our gods and trust the God of heaven and trust that Christ as her personal savior. He said, would you tell me one more time? And I took the Bible and shared with him. And just as I'm getting ready to ask him to pray, all of his student teachers came in, or his teachers came in, and to sit down in the table. He didn't know there was going to be there. And I'm thinking, well, there's no way he's going to get saved now in front of all of his teachers. He looked at me, and he's got tears dripping down his cheeks, dripping on the table. He said, what do I have to do? And so I tested him. I said, well, Mike, if you really mean business, you're going to have to slide your chair back. You're going to have to get on your knees in front of the chair and bow your head and ask God to, to save you. Well, I was testing his sincerity, but before I could get it out, he was already on his knees praying. And there in that village inn outside of Rollins, Wyoming, he bowed his head, he bowed his heart and trusted Christ as his personal Savior. I'm saying to you tonight, those that are lost are on the wrong path of life and they need to be told that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. Secondly tonight, people that are lost they're not only on the wrong path, they're insecure and uncertain. If you, if you ask them this question tonight, do you know for sure if you died, you'd go to heaven? And they give you this response, well, I'm not sure, I don't know. They're telling you the truth, friend. They don't know. They are uncertain, they're insecure. They're putting their hope in the things of this world and it brings an uncertainty, an insecurity about them. The Bible says in the book of Proverbs, chapter 27 and verse number one, boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. There is a certain insecurity of those that do not know Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. You find in the scriptures the man... In Luke's gospel, chapter 12, verse number 15 through 21, and um, he looked out over his fields that God had blessed him and his crops were abundant. And he said, I know what I'll do. Thou hast many goods laid up for thyself. And uh, he said that he had tear down the old barns and build bigger and better barns. And he said, I'll build those barns, stock them full. And he said, I'll eat, drink, and be merry. But God looked over the banners of heaven, and this is exactly what he said. Hey, thou fool. Tonight all those things are going to be required of thee and then who shall these things be? This man was living in a false security. There was an uncertainty. 
In Matthew 16 and 26, the Bible said, What shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange of his soul? I remember when I was a chaplain at the Wyoming State Penitentiary, there was a man that had been on death row. He was the last man on death row at the old prison and the first man on death row at the new prison. He had served on death row, and I can't remember the exact years, either 12 or 15 years. I had witnessed to him. He claimed to be what he called a Jack Mormon. I asked him, I said, Mark, what's a Jack Mormon? He said, well, you'd call it a backslidden Baptist. I said, oh, so it's a backslidden Mormon? He said, yes, but we call them Jack Mormons. I witnessed to him on a number of occasions. The day come for his execution. He said, preacher, I want you there. I went back, in fact, in my office at the ministry of the Rock of Ages. I have on my shelf a Bible that I'd taken back and given to him with the scriptures marked on how he could be saved. I've got a stuff full of gospel tracts. I gave him a dictionary and a Strong's Concordance, a Haley's Bible handbook. I, I didn't have a lot of resources to distribute at that time, but I gave him what I had. And I went back numerous uh, occasions trying to tell him about Christ. He said, preacher, when I'm executed tomorrow, I want you to come and witness it. I said, Mark, it'd make matters a whole lot easier if you'd get saved and give the, your life to the Lord. I remember when the next day came and it was just moments before he'd be executed, I went back to witness to him. And I remember as I walked in the room, there had two guards standing over him and he was right across from the execution chamber. He was supposed to be put to death by a firing squad because Mormons believe you have to shed your blood in death in order to gain heaven. And they still had that as a means of execution, but they had transitioned to lethal injection and done away with the firing squad. And though he requested it, they were putting him to death by lethal injection. And somewhere from the time I had uh, talked to him to the time, uh, the last time to the time of his execution, when I walked into that room, he sat in a stool in the middle of the room and he told the officers, the guards, he said, there comes that preacher trying to save my soul from hell. He said, if I start acting religious, he said, slap me out of my chair and knock some sense into me if you would. I said, Mark, you need to get saved. I said, you don't understand. You're getting ready to die and go to hell where you'll spend an eternity without Christ. And you remember throughout eternity that you rejected Christ. You rejected the preacher and you rejected the word of God. He said, preacher, I'll see the devil in five minutes and I'm going to tell him you said hi. turned to the officers and said, tell Warden Schillinger I don't want him to witness my execution anymore. I stood just outside a little curtain, makeshift curtains that they closed together. Well, then just a few moments after that conversation, he said, preacher, I'll see the devil in just a few minutes and I'll tell him you said hi. Within just a few moments, Mark slipped out into eternity. I didn't see his face because they had pulled the curtains. But they said he had a a horrifying look on his face as he slipped out and faced death. He trusted in certain securities and things of this world. He trusted his religion to get him to heaven. The third thing tonight, a person that's lost is helpless. They can't save themselves. They can't change their circumstances within themselves. 
There's a man in Mark's gospel, chapter 9, verse 14 through 29, who came to the disciples and the Bible said that uh, his son was demon-possessed and they couldn't do anything for him. He'd come to the Lord Jesus Christ and the Bible said that he cast the demons out of him. And we find that as he came before the Lord, hear this man... He said, if I take him by the fire, he jumps into the fire to burn himself. If he goes by the water, he jumps in the water to drown himself. Can you imagine being a dad and you can't take your son fishing or hunting or even roast marshmallows by a fire because he's suicidal? We find that God healed him and God changed him. And in this example, I'm going to give you three very brief things tonight because I want to get to my last thought or two. We find that this man was trusting in his own self-righteousness. In Isaiah chapter 64 and verse number 6, all of our righteousness are as filthy rags. We find in Luke 18, verse 11 and 12, that pride destroys our faith and pride hinders us from putting our trust in Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior. Our self-righteousness renders us helpless concerning Christ and eternity. Our pride hinders us. You may be sitting here tonight and you know that you're lost without Christ, but pride hinders you from coming to an altar and trusting Christ as your Savior. I was preaching in Dwight, Illinois several years ago. Gave the invitation and several people had responded, but I noticed that the pastor disappeared with one particular man in the congregation and we went back to fellowship after the service and we sat there and pastor's wife said, said right here, Brother Ellis said the preacher will be here in a little bit. He's talking to a gentleman that responded in the invitation. I said, that'll be fine, Sister Cindy. So we sat and it was quite some time, 45 to 50 minutes. In fact, we were just getting ready to leave. And all of a sudden the pastor came out and that man came out. And he ran over and gave us a big hug. He said, Brother Ellis, I've been in this church 35 years. He said, I've known it for some time, but he said, I've known for a while that I've been lost without Christ, and I just couldn't take it anymore tonight. I was preaching in the Panhandle of Florida. In fact, I believe it's where a preacher was supposed to have been this week. And during the invitation, folks were responding, and all of a sudden, the piano music stopped. When I looked over, she got up, and I thought maybe she had an emergency, and I kept extending the invitation and looked over to my right, and there were several ladies gathered around her and praying for her. And after a while, she stood up and was rejoicing, and she said, I've been a member of this church for X amount of years, and this morning the Holy Spirit of God convicted me and showed me my need for salvation, and I determined I'm not going to allow my pride to stand in my way in getting right with God. The fourth thing I want you to realize tonight of lost people, and that is that there's only one way for them to be saved and found, and that's Jesus Christ. You say, preacher, what's the big deal about so many people dying in our generation? The big deal is this. Most of them die without Christ. We've been commanded to take the gospel to them. John 14 and verse number 6, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by me. Do you believe that tonight here at Bible Baptist Church, that Christ is the only way to heaven? He's not one of the ways or a multiplicity of ways. He is the way, the way, the truth, and the life. And Jesus said, no man cometh unto the Father but by me. 
I thank God I'm a Baptist. Unashamedly, I'm a Baptist tonight. Someone asked Dr. B.R. Lincoln, said, Dr. Lincoln, what would you be if you wouldn't have a Baptist? And instantly he said, well, I'd be ashamed of myself. That's what I'd be. I'm a Baptist, but let me tell you, the Baptist didn't die on the cross of my sins. Jesus Christ died on the cross of my sins. The church didn't die on the cross. Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. There's only two things in the Bible that God loves so much he gave himself for. One was the church in Ephesians chapter five. Christ loved the church, I just quoted, and gave himself for it. Secondly, the sinners. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And my friend, outside of those two things in the Bible, you'll find nothing else that Christ loves so much he died for. You say, nobody loves me tonight. You're wrong. Christ loves you and gave himself for you. I say to you tonight, there's only one way to heaven, and that's Jesus Christ. And we know that tonight if you're here and you've been grounded in the scriptures. Acts 4 and verse number 12. Either is there salvation in any other, for there is no other Name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Behold, now is the acceptable time of the Lord. Behold, now is the day of salvation. As I thought about those that are lost, as I said the other night, the problem is not finding sinners. The problem is finding saints that are willing to tell sinners about the Savior. I was recently in a meeting and a preacher said preachers ought to be creature reachers. And I thought that was pretty good. Every preacher ought to be a creature reacher. Reaching people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. You say, but preacher, God wouldn't save anybody like me. Well, I've got the answer to that. God gave it to us in John chapter 3 and verse 37. He that cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast out. He said, but preacher, you don't understand what I've done. I've seen murderers, thieves, robbers, religious people. When I left the Wyoming State Penitentiary, we had five preachers doing time in prison. Three of them were Baptists. Two of them were independent Baptists. I'm reminded some years ago as a man was driving down his road and he passed by a lake that was frozen and he heard the screams and cries of a young voice. He slammed his brakes on and got out of his car and realized that there was a young man out on the lake and he had fallen through the ice. He was drowning. The man opened his trunk and got a rope, crawled out on the ice, and eventually when the ice began to crack, he laid down to disperse his weight and crawled out and inched his way out. Finally, he got close enough he could throw the rope. And he said to the young man, Grab hold of the rope! The young man grabbed hold of the rope, and the man was able to pull him up and save him from drowning that day. Years had passed and the young man had gotten in trouble with the law and he stood before a judge and as he stood before the judge, 
and the sentence was passed upon him, all of a sudden it registered with that young man. He said, Your Honor, may I, may I say something? And the judge gave him liberty to say it. He said, sir, he said, your honor, he said, when I was a little boy, he said, I was on a lake and on the ice, a frozen lake, and the ice cracked and I fell through and there was a man coming by, a passerby who heard my cries for help. And he stopped and he risked his own life. He crawled out on the ice and threw me a rope and he saved me that day from destruction. He said, your honor, I believe you're that man. And by now the judge and them both are weeping. The judge looked at him and says, yes, sir, I was that man. And the man said, but your honor, I don't understand. You saved my life that day and today you sentenced me to die. And the judge looked at him and says, young man, that day I was your savior. But today I'm your judge. I want him to come to the instruments and get ready for an invitation tonight. I don't know the needs are to hear. But I was thinking about an illustration that would illustrate salvation and what the Lord's wanting to do. I thought about working in prison ministry and prison work. If our grandchildren at home, someone were to break into our home and they took the life of our children and I took off after them and I caught them with my hands and I took their life from them, that would be retribution. If them people broke into our home and I ran out after them and I grabbed hold of them with my hand and I said to them, I don't understand why you would take the life of my grandchildren, but I'm gonna take you to the authorities and the authorities do what they do and they prosecute them, that would be justice. If I went out after that individual and I caught him and I said to him, I don't understand why you would do that, but I'll tell you what I'm gonna do, I'm gonna let you go. That would be mercy. But my friend, God's not looking for retribution. He's not looking for justice. And he's not even looking to give us mercy. If I went out after that individual, caught him, and said, you know, I don't understand why you do that, but I took him into my home and I showed him where our grandchildren slept and I showed them where they sat at the table and I showed them through the home and I said to them, our grandchildren received a certain uh, amount of money and uh, we take that and here's what I want to do. I want to adopt you. We're going to make you uh, and take the place of our grandchildren and now you sit at the table where they once sat. You sleep in the bed that they once slept in. You take the, the uh, salary, the offering that we had for them. We're going to take you and adopt you and make you our grandchild. My friend, that would be grace. And that's what God wants to give tonight. As they begin to play on the instruments, I wonder tonight, every head bowed and every eye closed, is <coughs> there one here sitting tonight say, Preacher, if I died, I know, I know, I know without a shadow of a doubt, <coughs> I'm not saved and I wouldn't go to heaven. Would you pray for me, 